I'm going to start with one. I'm going to pick it by random. So I, we won't probably get through all of them here. So, but I'm going to randomly choose. We'll let the Holy Spirit guide my fingers. And we'll see what we come up with. All right. Does that sound fair enough to everybody? All right. Well, anyway, <clears throat> here we go. Question number one. I feel like, who, is it? who was it, Vanna White? Who used to do, I can't remember who. It was one of those game shows. Who was it was a game show? Who, who was one of those old, what was those old game shows that used to have some lady reach in there? Maybe it was, I don't know, Price is Right. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. All right, I'm wasting time. All right, so here we go. <laughs> um, based on the presupposition that Noah's flood was a global event, please explain how non-white races populated the earth post-flood. All right? So um, I guess what I'll do, if, if, if you don't mind, I think I'll just start at the far end and we're, we've got the mic ready to go. Dan, are you comfortable with this question? Dan? You're okay? All right. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you ministers a chance to pass if you really are uncomfortable for one reason. So one more quick time. Based on the presupposition that Noah's flood was a global event, please explain how non-white races populated the earth post-flood. All right, Dan. Now, when you look at the uh, account of the Genesis flood, it says that God brought Hello, testing. Hello, hello. Hold back there. Hello, hello. Go ahead, Dan. Just, just project my way forward. We think. God brought all the all of the animals that were going to be on the earth. Yep. It, it doesn't specify, but one of the one of the things that you can look at in the Bible when it talks about beasts. Yes. It's just that's a living thing, yeah. and it doesn't specify when it comes to the other races that. It says there are only eight souls right. on, the, on the ark. And if we know that Noah would, would have been of Adam's genealogy, and that Adam was the one that had the breath of life in him, right. all of the other creation were alive, but didn't have the same soul right. in them. So I firmly believe that all of the other races that you see populating the earth today were on the ark. And that would include, unfortunately, Cain's descendants. Yeah. So the argument that is being made is that all races came out of Noah. And I don't believe that at all. Because if you follow the law of kind after kind, the seed would have reproduced itself. Right. And Shem, Ham, and Japheth would have all been Adam. Now, Canaan, on the other hand, the son of Adam, was he defiled just like Esau was? Yeah. We can speculate on that. 
But we know that Cain's descendants came through the flood. Amen. Okay. All right. Thanks. A follow up then. Uh, clear. Okay. Pastor Gaiman, you got two minutes. Go. Yes. Number one. Bible tells us in Genesis chapter number six, verse seventeen, that every thing that breathed alive is going to be destroyed. Having said that, that means that the only life that's going to survive the flood are those inside that ark. Amen to that. Then if we move down to verse 19, of every living thing of all flesh, every living thing of all flesh includes every kind of creature that God created, biped, quadruped, etc. If we go then to verse number 15, and they went in unto Noah into the ark. And two of all flesh wherein is the breath of life. So inside that ark is every creature, including every distinct separate race God created. And God was very selective. He didn't bring in half-breeds. Hybrids. He brought in the pre preserved seed of every kind that he had created in the beginning. When they left the ark, they went to their own allotted places in the earth, just as God had intended. So I close this little argument with <clears throat> the Bible telling us, it says in verse 21, all flesh died that moved upon the earth. No flesh lives outside the ark. Verse 22, uh, everything that had breath on dry land died. And finally, and lastly, when they left the ark, they went and reproduced themselves. That's it, Pastor Gaiman. So, do we have one more minute, Mr. Clark? Uh, all right, I'll take the minute one, real quick. That's all I need. Um, from a more science perspective, if you have some understanding of genetics, human beings are genetically unique in that if you do the math, eight souls could not produce what we see in the world today. It just couldn't happen. So there had to be all the races that we see today, there, there had to be something already on the heart to help boost this yes. okay all right thanks okay so that's it so we are done with that question all right question number two is here we go so gentlemen just pass that around just hand it to each other and be ready it should be on is that right levi okay so the next question is the church of israel advocates the use of the king james bible is it the church's opinion that the King James Version is absolutely without error or that it is the best available but may have fewer errors than other translations? All right. So let's see here. Well, Nathan, it's your turn. So we'll let you have the four minutes. If you wish, if you wish, it would like to defer this question or you want to go. I will. I'll make a stab at it. 
Um, so if I understood the question correctly, what separates the King James Bible from the other versions and is it perfect? Well, we'll start with the perfect part. Um, I've had, I've, and I've read a lot on this and I've had a lot of discussions and arguments about that the King James is, has errors. I have not found them. And the errors that people point out as this is being wrong are not difficult to explain and the errors are are not really all that big if they were errors as far as maybe some misspelling of names and things and, and, and another argument that is made is that this the King James Bible that we have here today or should have is many translations as well it's it's two or three down the line so which which King James Bible do you are you using well there's only one there in the beginning there were some issues with spelling spelling wasn't necessarily worked out perfect so there was a revision of getting the spelling so that what you read in Genesis that same word was spelled the same in Luke um, and then there was a revision of the uh, font the it not an old is not written in old English it, but it was printed in a font that was we're not familiar with where um, the letters it's not that hard to figure out if you have an old King James Bible just takes a little time to to work through it but th these these were not translation changes it's still the original Bible now when you go to the other translations they do have errors they have grave grave errors and they also leave out a big portion of important scripture they're watered down if I if I could use that word you don't get the full meal and that's important when it comes to the doctrine of Jesus Christ and ourselves we're, we're called to make our salvation sure and we want to do that with a bowl of uh, apple uh, alphabet soup we don't want to do that but I'll tell you one of the the gravest errors that it has just just to show how important it is for us to find the, the right the right Bible is that the uh, the most popular other Bible um, translation I believe is the NIV in the world today I'm not going to turn there for time's sake but the NIV literally says that if a woman is raped that they are to be bound to that rapist and there is no option for, for divorce. Now the King James does not read that at all. But that's, I mean, when you're trying to, to, to battle with a young mind and then someone says, well, God, God says it rapes just fine. We have an issue. So I think it's really important that we do find the right word of God and, and that's gonna be the key. And, and on one last note, I think I got, my timer hasn't gone off. Mm -hmm. Nothing great has happened with any other translation out of the other tr line of translations. Great things have happened out of the line of the King James and the Geneva Bible and that line. But nothing great has happened with the NIV. All right, well, okay, thank you. All right, that was, you stayed within your four minutes. That's great. Does someone else here have a, a follow-up comment they would like to add? Okay, <laughs> Pastor Gaiman. <clears throat> pass him the mic, please. Mic down. Pass the mic. Quick. That's all right. Yeah. Pass the mic. Go ahead. Well, let me just say this regarding the King James Bible. Just remember this, that the Bible tells us in Psalms 12, 6, and 7, that every word of God is like, like going through a pur purifying furnace seven times. Now, the very next verse, verse 7, Psalms chapter number 12 Thou shalt preserve them, O God. Thou pre shalt preserve them forever. By faith, 
you open the pages of the Bible and you not only believe that God has divinely inspired his word, but that same wonderful, mighty, all-sovereign God has preserved his word. Many people believe in divine inspiration. A fewer number of people believe in divine preservation. So the, the question before us is, does God promise to preserve his word? And that can be validated from scripture that God not only inspired his word, he preserved his word, and God's word will be standing though heaven and earth pass away, God promises his word will stand. And that word is not found in the, in, the, uh, in the Bibles, particularly the NIV, which is probably one of the more, uh, the poorest translations. I'll end this by saying this. What was the original assault in the, in the Garden of Eden? The serpent came and said, Yea, hath God said. The world we live in is still saying, Yea, hath God said. They don't believe what God said. That's why they don't have the ability to divide between male and female. Time's up. Time's up. We have one minute. All right, pass it down to John. John, you have a minute. I just want to say, uh, one of the foundations of, of Christianity is that God spoke to us. God gave us his word, that God's explaining to us what he wants from us. If we don't have an authoritative word, something that we can look to and trust, then we have nothing. There, there is nothing to, to fall back on. And when, when we look at the, the fact that the King James uh, Version of the Bible was what God's people had, for literally hundreds of years, and that's all they had, then that has to be watched over by God. Um, and there, you know, there's other, other translations that maybe you can look to and, and see some insight you know, to give you a little bit help, uh, of understanding, but I can only trust that the one that I know God has, has looked over and watched over, that's what I can trust. Everything else, if there's any, any conflict, I can't trust the conflict. Okay, all right, thank you. Very good. We're being pretty, pretty good in our time so far. All right, so that covers that question. So the next one is... Well, this is interesting. I'm, I'm not sure we need... Okay, this just happened to come up here. Okay, it, it says, how did the seed line of Cain, that is Satan, come through the flood if the flood was global and not local? You know, I think in a sense, we maybe have already addressed that one. Let me just set that one aside. It'd be all right if we just say we kind of covered that one with the other, other races. So we'll, we'll move on. We can come back to that if it turns out we have some time. All right, here's a question. <clears throat> the question is, if the law applies to Israel only and salvation, what happens to non-Israelites that have done horrible things like child abuse and trafficking after they die? Who goes to hell besides unrepentant Israel? Let me repeat the question, and I guess, uh, uh, John, this would be yours if you would like to, to tackle it, if you care to. The question is, if the law applies to Israel only and salvation, what happens to non-Israelites that have done horrible things like child abuse and trafficking after they die? Who goes to hell besides unrepentant Israel? That's the question. In Romans, it says that the entire creation suffered... Um, from the, from the sin of Adam. 
that when Adam sinned, corruption fell on everything. Everything, including non-Israel, all of creation, all of even plants and, and animals die now because of that, uh, that sin. Hell, the, the punishment of hell is something that's reserved for the eternal. It's not something that, uh, um, that the mortal faces. And so I, I would say that, that when we're talking about the, the other peoples besides Israel that haven't been given the law, they suffer from the same corruption, they suffer from the same consequences of sin. You know, when, when, when you lie, it causes harm to your relationships and so forth. When you steal, you, you invite theft back against you. There, there is a suffering from sin that is in this world. The suffering from sin that is, that is of hell is reserved for those that are immortal. And so I, I don't believe that, that we would be applying hell to the other nations. Okay, all right, thank you. That was succinct, good. Does someone have a follow-up? Is there someone here who would care to? Yeah, is that working now? Yeah. Okay, great. Go ahead, you've got, you've got two minutes, Mr. Right. Diamond. I'll just read uh, out of Jude here, uh, Jude 5 and 6. I will therefore put your remembrance, though you once knew it, how that the Lord, having saved his people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels would catch not their first estate, but left their own habitation. She hath reserved an everlasting chains unto darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So man, and then we could look at Hebrews where it says, uh, I believe it's in nine, that you know, it's reserved unto man once to die and then the judgment. So on the day of judgment, there's two, I think only two peoples that will be judged. That will be Adam, man, because he has an immortal soul. To, to Adam was breathed into him the breath of life, and he has an immortal soul that will go on living in perpetuity. And so to some of Adam's seed will be given to go into everlasting life, and some will be given to go into everlasting damnation. The, other, the only other class of God's creation that will be judged at that time will be the angels. It says there in verse 6, He hath reserved them unto everlasting chains unto the judgment of the great day. So those will be the only two categories of creation that are judged in that day, the fallen angels and mankind. Okay. All right. We have, uh, thank you. Got one minute. May I, let me, I'll jump in if that's all right. Is that permitted? Yeah. I, I guess it is since I made the rules. So yeah, I'll take a minute. <laughs> I think what's kind of behind this question is, you know, a sense of justice, right? You know, what seems to be fair and not fair. So hypothetically, if we say, whatever happened to Mao Zedong, you know, he killed millions of his own Chinese brethren and so forth. Doesn't that guy deserve, you know, deserve hell a lot more than, than just some Israelite who just wasn't part of God's plan? And I think one of the things that we as humans have to understand is that, is that God's sense of justice and our sense of justice are very different and we have, to, we have to allow God to be completely sovereign, completely sovereign, not mostly sovereign, partly sovereign, but completely sovereign. And he knows so much more than we do. And our, our vision and our insight and the way we think and view things and feel about this and that, um, is, it cannot be completely trusted. And so, for example, so in Romans 9, Paul speaks briefly about this sense of, of, of justice, so this, this human sense of fairness. When he talks about Pharaoh, and he says, um, well, let's see here. It says, I'll, I'll break into Romans 9, 15. For he saith to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So it is not of him that willeth or him that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. It's not really, it, it, many, many people who've, who've looked into this deeply actually would argue that, the, that man's sense of free will and man's sense of decision making and man's sense of justice is really largely illusionary. And, and we underestimate God working in us, God working in our hearts, God working in, in, in all the affairs of man in ways that are far beyond our understanding. And then it goes on to say, Paul uses Pharaoh for an example. He hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then he punished Pharaoh. Well, what's fair about that? He hardened his heart, and then he punished him for having a hard heart. It's exactly what it says in verse 17 of Romans 9. And then it goes on to say, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? So this is a little bit, uh, just a slight sidetrack from the original question, but, but I think what we have to do is we have to take our sense of fairness and justice and set it aside and just say, what can we, what does the Bible teach? And we're going to let God be God. Yes, okay, moving on. Thank you, Martin. You know, I didn't set my own one minute. Did I go over a minute? All right, thanks, Martin. Question, next question, though. Goes fast. All right, so here we go. Next question is, how much confidence should we place in DNA tests regarding race? Well, now that's a, that's a, that's a bell ringer there. Uh, whose turn is it? All right, Ian, you wanna, you wanna you know, share your op opinion? You know, probably, well, you just go ahead. I won't say anymore. I don't know. It's kind of more of a just random question there. Uh, I think that it, it's interesting. Um, and it seems to, you know, from what I've seen, they seem to hold pretty true. Um, I think that at the same time, you know, you can have your DNA tested. I've was actually I have a kit. I haven't done it, but I was about to get it sent in here. Um, it seems to be interesting, you know, maybe tracing yourselves to your to your tribe and really kind of knowing where you came from um, within Israel. Um, you know, if there's perhaps a, you know it shows you five you percent know, some Indian. I you know I don't know if you know it's a you, you know your faith and. Uh, in you know God and in you know His preservation of of His people genetically and spiritually. You know, um, should you let that shipwreck your faith and you know determine your faith upon your a DNA test? I I don't necessarily think so. Um, have yeah, you know you know your own heart, um, and you should be able to trust that. You know, God says he will, he'll preserve his people. Um, and so even though you have that rumor that, you know, some great, great aunt or, you know, grandmother or something was part Indian or something, you know, have, I suppose you could get your DNA tested if that concerns you. Um, but uh, how much stock you can put in it, you know, it, it's still science. We don't trust a lot of what science says, you know, science all the science says 
such and such, you know. There's a lot of things that science says that we don't, we don't believe in. We don't put our stock in. So, you know, trust in the promises of God for who you are and for where you came from. And, uh, you know, he's certainly has promised that he'll preserve his people Israel um, without spot, without wrinkle, unto the coming of the day. So. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right, great. Okay, John, go ahead. I want to caution people when they look at those DNA tests because realize that the, the way they determine or, or the way they're classifying as like this ethnic variety, this ethnic variety, is not the same way we are. They are basing that on, you know, the, the, the genes or the DNA that is in that region now. They're not basing on, on, you know, an ethnic descent or a seed line. They're basing it on just, you know, and you can go to like the Middle East right now and they will say, well, okay, these are the people that are here right now. So that's who we assume was there a thousand years ago. And that's not the same thing. You know, you can go to Germany right now and the people that are in Germany are not necessarily, there's, there's other nations, there's other races there. And so, you know, what they are searching for, what they're telling you, this is German or this is uh, Scottish or this is Indian or so forth, is not necessarily what we're thinking of when we think of German, Scottish, and Indian. So just be very careful with that. And, you know, Paul says um, that we, we, we shouldn't, you know, he talks about endless genealogies, that, that we have to be careful with endless genealogies. Uh, the, the, ch the children of Israel have fruit. And that, you know, obviously there are obvious um, signs that, that will show you a, a person's ethnic uh, descent. But once you get past that, look at the fruit. And, uh, you know, just be careful of those, of those, or those uh, genetic testing. Okay, thank you. All right, Pastor Gaiman, we'll give you one minute. I think the best DNA test that you will find and there is one above all others. It's God's word. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, that's DNA, and of the intense thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word will carve out the true DNA. And moreover, a lot of the early, early DNA tests had the pre premise, they, they began with the premise that all life began in Africa. So the earliest, some of the earliest uh, findings of the DNA test always had a little something about Africa or perhaps Asia. I think they have improved it but I think it's, it's truly, truly error to believe it as gospel truth. Amen. Okay, thank you. Time's up. That was good. You, you hit that just right, Pastor Heyman. Okay, so next question we have here. Let's see. All right, so, uh, well, here's the question. And I, I guess, Ezekiel, is it your turn to go first? All right, so here's the question. What should the single youth be doing to help their church? What should the single youth be doing to help their church? It's actually a really good question. So you youth, those who are here in the congregation that have that youthful blood, that youthful spirit, you have a lot of power in the church, more so than you know. And your ability to move things in the congregation to cause things to happen is really stronger than you think. 
Because I, I remember when I was younger, I thought the same thing. I thought, what does it matter, me being here in the congregation? But it's all these little things that you don't think about, that you don't notice, that add up into a culmination of constructing the church, making it better, making it stronger, making it last longer, and continue on to the next generation. So what are some things that you can do? You know, we have the brass, we have the choir, those are the big ones. There's also a youth group. But it goes beyond just the physical items where you go and you spend time specifically for the church. You know, one thing that I see that the youth are doing of this church is reaching out. The exhortation and the love that our youth have for reaching out, talking to new people, getting out of that introverted ideology and into extroversion to go out and meet new people. And what we have today are new people that have come from our youth reaching out, going to the singles retreat that we hear about, meeting new people and showing them the light that's in their life and asking them to be a part of that light too. So youth, the, one of the most important things you can do is just that. Bring forth your light to other people. Because it's, I, I have this problem. As I'm getting a little older, I'm not that old yet. I'm still quite young. I still have a lot to learn. But that, that attitude of introversion, of I know who I like, and I just want to kind of stick with them. I don't want to, you know, it, it takes extra effort to go out and put yourself out there as you get older. Now, that, shouldn't deter, that didn't, shouldn't deter us from doing that. We still need to, us as we get older. But young people, you don't have that uh, roadblock as much. So continue forth with that. And when you see items, things that you can be a part of, that are asked for volunteers, be a part of that. Ask, ask to be a part of that. Encourage others to be a part of that as well. And be happy with what you're doing. When you go to... Uh, items, uh, brass choir, choir, uh, youth meetings. Don't do them with a sad countenance. Do them with happiness because you're doing them with others your age and you're bringing forth God's family here in the church. So largely, keep doing what you're already doing and always be looking out for more. I, I hope that answers that question. Okay, yes, Pastor down there, thank you. All right. Nathan, I'll just take the one-minute one. No, you got to, you're in the two-minute Two, two things I think the young people will benefit from and the church itself if you do these two things. One, participate. Find something to get involved with. Yeah. Second thing, you are the next generation, but we're not looking for the next generation to go out and do something brand new and what they want. So you need to attach yourself to the first generation. You need to be watching and looking what the first generation is, because it's your job to, do, to carry on what has already been established. And it is real, and I saw this is kind of a warning, it, it's, young people tend to want to stretch their legs and be unique and all do their own thing. Don't do that. Look to the wise people of the congregation you're in and say, how can I mimic that and carry those principles on in my life into the next generation? Thank you. We have uh, someone want one minute? Dan? <laughs> I appreciate what the young people are doing just in the cafeteria, uh, collecting the plates and silverware and stuff while we're eating and talking. Um, those of you that are young, if you, you don't feel that you have the calling to be in the choir or you're not musically talented that you can play an instrument, 
look at what you can do just to take care of the facilities here and help out. I mean, if you've got strength of character, you can use your muscles to help out maintaining the grounds here. You know, don't let everything rely on these guys that have other responsibilities. Get involved with the church just if it's that small and you'll be blessed for it. You know, that's the beginning area. Once you get a little older and a little more mature, then get involved with other things. Grow in what you do and start out with just helping, cleaning up things, picking up the plastic cups on the campground or anything. Okay, all right, that's it for that question. Gotta move on. Sorry, sorry, uh, we're moving on. Okay, uh, well, okay, now this, this question, uh, it is kind of word a little awkward, but it, it's worth, you know, since we're a racially oriented people, we'll throw this out. Now, I think this goes to Pastor Gaiman for the first four minutes. Oh, okay, you wanna, all right, okay, very well then. All right, uh, here we go. Um, <laughs> Dan, this will be of, of interest, I suppose. Is a person with a classic Edomite Jew nose typically a modern day Jew? <laughs> So I, I included that question. It, it seems a little funny, but but really, you know, we're it, it, we are racially sensitive people, and so we need to talk about race sometimes. So let's go ahead, Dan. You can just start us off on a short conversation about race and noses, and you can, you know, maybe you'd like to talk about foreheads or something. I don't know. Go. I'm going to say no, because each one of us has a unique physiology of our heads. Now, I would more lay into the idea that by your fruits, Amen. that you will know them. I mean, there are, you know, I'm gonna use my grandpa as an example. He had the short haircut, and when you looked at him crossways, he looked like Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. And if you look at that, royal family in Germany, they had the arch nose. You know, I, I don't take into account that facial structure so much as more than their deeds. What are they doing? You know, you can have people that have the high flat forehead. Are they Cro-Magnon men? I don't know. But we are all uniquely made. And it's the fruits that tell you more than anything. And you can have the ugliest person out there and they'll have the kindest heart. So I, I, I don't get into the uh, physical looks as much, but I look at what the fruit is. Someone else like to comment? Thank you, Dan. Do we have another comment? No? All right. Oh, was that a yes or no? Okay, Pastor Gaiman. You have two minutes, Pastor Gaiman. Well, let me say this. I think if you look at the prevailing cabinet in Joe Biden's, Obama's White House, you would have to say that some of those people looked like they were hatched out of the same brood. And I... I I somehow believe 
that if you go back to Cain, God put a mark on him. Now, I'm not going to identify what that mark might have been, but I think that the Jewish face does bear a cast that identifies them in a way that is different from all the other people on the earth. They seem to be a class of people that by their facial countenance, the, the expression of their eyes, the, 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 uh, the, just the general contour of their, uh, their cranial structure, they're just too much alike to say that you cannot identify them. And when they speak, and by their actions, by the fruit, you really confirm them uh, 100%. But I do believe that the idea that by their fruit you shall know them, and I know that there are people that have been incorrectly, shamefully and wrongfully identified as Jewish when they were not. So I, I wanna you know, be sure that when you go to identify people by racial identification with regard to being a Jew, be very, very cautious. Amen. Be very cautious. That's all I have to say. Okay, all right, we have a one minute. Does anybody have one minute they'd like to spend on this? Or shall we press on? All right, I guess we'll press on the next question. So the next question here uh, is, um, well, Julie told me, he said, don't forget to include yourself in answering questions. So, so I'm going to take this one. Isn't that what you said? What? No, I, I just pulled it out here. I don't know. You'll have a chance, Nathan. You can chime in on this one if you like. So uh, here's the question. Should daughters be taught to always eschew doctrine and theology and wait upon their future husband's positions. Okay, uh, so I, I take it to mean, okay, the question again, should da daughters be always taught to eschew doctrine and theology, that is, I guess, uh, avoid it, and wait upon their future husband's positions? Uh, I think that it's possible uh, that, I, I mean, I think the answer is no, and I'll, I'll tell you why I think the answer is no. Um, let me see if I can find a passage that comes to mind. You know, it could be that, that the reason that, the, that some people would argue yes is a bit of a reaction to the, the feminist movement. You know, among men, we do see some of that. And the feminist movement deserve, rightly deserves a little pushback, or maybe a lot of pushback. Um, and I, it could be that they might land on, here's a, here's a verse that, that would say, yeah, they ought to, they ought to just, let, just, just not even get involved in theology or doctrine or thinking at all and just remain... Uh, uh, ignorant of all things biblical. And they might go to 1 Corinthians 14 that says, um, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it's not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as saith the law. And if they'll learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's a shame for women to speak in the church. So that's in 1 Corinthians 14. And so Paul is telling women that they, they, church is not the place for them to be talking um, and, and, and speaking out, but they need to go home and talk to their husbands. Now, that verse there, though, is given in the context of Paul also telling the Corinthian church, which was kind of a mess. It was a bit of a, 
Well, it was like a, a, a charismatics on, on steroids. And um, that, that continued to be a problem in the early church. There was a sect known as the Montanists who were a bit this way. But Paul also told people, uh, others to be silent in the church. For example, regarding um, the interpreting of tongues, it says, if there's no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church. So there may be more about this than, what, than, than that verse is really just talking so much about, as, as much about women. And it also has to be placed in the context of other things we know about the women, other instructions given to ladies. So for example, in Acts chapter 16, we have Paul, uh, he met a lady named Lydia. And it tells us that uh, uh, Lydia is, a, is a, a seller of purple and so forth, and it says, whose heart was open that she attended to the things which were spoken of Paul. Yeah. And then it says, and when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, and then goes on. So we get the sense of, of this story with Lydia is that she was the head of her household and that she guided her family into baptism. She guided her family in, in the understanding of this. And she didn't wait. Um, we don't know if she was a widow. We don't know if she has it. We just don't know. But she took, there was some initiative that she took. And if she was, um, and, and if we were to assume that virtue is an ignorance among women, then we, I think we've got a little problem there with properly understanding Lydia. Furthermore, you know, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 and another place where Paul talks about women and men, and he's talking about marriage. He has this to say, if I can find that verse, um, it's verse number, oh, here it is, um, 16. For what say, knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save, save thy wife? So it's telling us that in the relationship of the husband and wife, and it's talking about unbelievers. Say, so if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. But it says, the unbelieving husband sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. So it's telling us that in a marriage relationship, God gives extra grace to the believing spouse. And that extra grace uh, it, it hinges upon the, the, the faith and, and has to include a certain amount of knowledge and understanding of biblical matters uh, that, that a lady would have in the case of a lady who is a believer and a, and a husband who's not. And then, of course, we did, you may have noticed this, uh, there's a passage in First Peter we looked at last night, talks about the conversation of the wives. Perhaps you might remember that. When it tells us that wives are to be subjection to their own husbands, that if any obey not the word, so now you have an, a husband that's not obeying the word, they also may be without the word being won by the conversation of the wife. Now that's telling us that the wife has the, uh, not only the, the, the opportunity, but she has, should have the ability to win her husband uh, over, and that the, the conversations between husbands and wives at home uh, are to be about things that matter. And I, so, so I, I believe that it's, it's appropriate for young ladies when they're single to learn about doctrine and theology and then to find a husband, search for a husband, and accept a husband of their choosing that they're comfortable with, that their father and mother are comfortable with, who, um, in which they're comfortable, the theological matters are, are ironed out. And so, that, well, that's about all I have. My time is up, I see. So I guess that's it. Uh, yes, Pastor Gaiman, your turn. You've got two minutes. I think we need to remember that parents spend a lot of time and investment when they are the parents of a daughter. So that daughter lives under the cover of her parents and particularly under the uh, doctrinal teaching of her father and her mother. 
and the church if they belong to a given church. Now, that daughter has been enduringly living under that cover for a long, long time. So I think it's very, very important to the parents to know when they surrender that daughter, that they're not surrendering that daughter to a young man who has a, a mind that's cluttered with heretical teaching. Because that, that girl is, is going to suffer for a long, long time unless she can you know, improve that situation, which she may be able to do, but that's a very big risk. So here's, here's the way I look at that. Every young man has an urgent, imperative responsibility to dig into God's word and get his doctrine straight. Amen. So that when he approaches a young lady, she doesn't have that horrific job of trying to unload his heretical clutter. It's, that's not, that's a sad thing for a girl to have to do. So young man, let's, let's be ready when that, when that right girl comes along, God bless you, so that that girl will be secure in the mind that you have evolved through prayer, study, 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 fasting, God bless you. Okay, all right, uh, one minute, let's, uh, well, we had two hands there. Uh, uh, Nathan, I'll let you take this, you meant last minute. Minute. Um, to the late, to the young ladies and to the fathers, this is a serious subject that what Pastor Gaiman just, just mentioned. Don't be just letting your daughters go, and daughters, don't be giving your hearts away to this heretical teaching of many of the young men you may run into. But here's what I want to just point out. With heretical teaching, comes a lifestyle. Okay, well, a lot of times you're like, well, we're just arguing over words in the Bible. What's the big deal? The big deal is, is that a certain road of theology will produce something like this. Another road of theology will produce um, alienation and living in a tent. And so take their differences serious because it will be how you live your life in a physical way. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to move on to the next question. Let's see here. We have, and I think I'll just throw this out from the, the questions that we have remains. We've kind of run through the panel. So whichever one of you would like to answer this question, just raise your hand if you'd like to get involved. The next question is, how do we know which month is the first month to be able to calculate festivals and holy days? That's the question. Does someone like to give a tackle on that? Ian? All right. Ian, you've got four minutes. Um, the first month is in the Bible called Abib, and you can look up the meaning of that, it means ripe. It means, it's specifically referring to barley, which is an overwintered crop. So, you know, it's planted in the fall and then harvested in the spring. It's very, you know, it's almost like the, you know, what we might think of as rye, you know, something that grows very early in the spring and begins to ripen. So that kind of gives us a hint that it, it's going to be in the spring. Um, and then, uh, to look at you know, Genesis 1.14, it says, you know, he's given us the sun and the moon to be for signs and for seasons. And the word seasons there is uh, Hebrew moed, and it's elsewhere predominantly tra translated as feasts. You know, you'll see it repeatedly in the beginning of Leviticus 23. Um, so God's given us two witnesses, two things that we need to consult, both the sun and the moon, to find out when the feasts are going to be, when the seasons of the feasts are to come. 
And so we need to find a, a witness that we both use the, the moon as our witness to the month, but the sun is still our witness to the year. So, you know, we don't want to build a calendar that's dependent on just solar, on just the sun. Um, there's been people in identity that I've um, had a few, you know, we've had a lot of debates with that have built a, a calendar out of the uh, writings of the Essenes and the Dead Sea Scrolls that they found and how they had a calendar that was based strictly on the sun. And that's wrong. And it, their calendar is flawed because it only has 364 days. And they try to add one more and that gives them 365. But every four years, they lose a day. Um, so we have, to have, we have to have balance where we use the sun and the moon. And that balances itself out. So we determine the year based on the sun. So that's the, uh, the spring equinox. Um, because that's when, you know, that is a point that the sun you know, has a definitive moment in time that's in the spring. And we know that, you know, from ABIB, we know that the new year happens in the spring. because that's when things begin to ripen, begin to become green. Um, so we need to, we consult the witness of the sun for when the year begins. And as to when the specific month begins, we consult the moon. That's uh, what God has outlined. So we have two witnesses that we need to follow in heaven. Okay. All right. Thank you. Follow up, Mr. Clark. Everything Ian said is about all you need to know, but there is other clues in the Bible that maybe other groups might go with. It's like the green ears and things of that nature. And th th I think that that can get, take you, to, not necessarily dangerous road, but I, I think it, it's a, it sets you up for inaccuracy because you have to weigh in what the green ears actually were. Uh, there's a lot of things that you can grow that will have three months difference in turning green and becoming ready for harvest. And also globally, um, what turns green in America today, and what turns green in Israel um, today, is it's not gonna probably happen at the same time. So I don't think God is, is wanting us to build our calendar off of a lot of potentials. And that being said, if it's a dry year, green comes late. If it's a wet year, green comes early. We need to have something, as Ian said, work with the moon and the star, or rather the moon and the sun together and the, the vernal equinox and then the first new moon next to that um, seems to be about the most accurate way to do that. A third person like to comment? Okay. All right, Pastor Newman. <clears throat> Most Israelites know that there's been a, an enormous amount of controversy raised over the calendar over many years. <clears throat> and it's probably always going to remain a diversionary topic among Israelite believers. But I think that the, the ultimate conclusion that most people will come to is that you cannot build a sol solar exclusively uh, only calendar, neither can you use only the moon. Two witnesses God established to build the calendar. The two hands on God's time clock are the sun and the moon. The moon marks the month, the sun marks the year. The vernal equinox is established every springtime in March by the sun and the nearest new moon to that vernal equinox will always be Abib number one, day number one. If 14 days from that day, you'll have a full moon shining down from heaven 
standing out here in the parking lot, you could read a large print Bible under that moon. And that's the kind of a moon that all the Israelites marched out of Egypt under. Pastor, and time. without that full moon shining down, they would have been in darkness. Time. 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 Okay, we are done with that question. Thank you. Time dictates we must move on. The next question. Okay, um, this is another question dealing with racial topics. We're kind of, looks like that's what's coming up a little more. There's some other questions in there that aren't, but, you know, uh, here we go. All right, so, uh, having no physically visible attributes, but possibly bearing other genetic codes, such as Native American, is it lawful to marry a man or woman of such a lineage? Let me repeat the question, and, and, and I, I, if I can, I, I kind of, when I was looking at this, I think I was, my, my, my thinking on, on, on including this question as a possible one is this, having no physical visible attributes, but possibly bearing other genetic code, such as a Native American, is it lawful to marry a man or woman of such a lineage? I think the question is going to these areas of possible doubt, and how we strategically, you're going to work your way through these questions when someone uh, looks, looks Caucasian, looks white, looks pure, their family looks fine, but there is some sort of a possible rumor or this or that or some, uh, something else that raises a small question of doubt. I think the question really is trying to get to how do we work our way through these kind of issues? Is there, and, and, and is there any wisdom that someone on the panel would like to throw out for the congregation? Because these are, this is a real, kind of a real question that does arise. No one? <laughs> All right, Pastor Gabe. I don't like to dominate this conversation. Let me tell you this, folks. When you're a young single person and you're ready to be married, I think it's very important that you make every effort to make sure that the genetic package that you're going to bring together is one wholesome uh, seed for the granary that Brother Dan talked about. So that means, beloved, that if a girl, a single young girl, she's going to be the means by which a young man is going to propagate his genetics. If I were in the shoes of the young lady, I would certainly want to know what kind of seed I'm going to propagate. Amen. I would want to know that that seed is going to be good seed, and I would make every effort to know I'd want to see family pictures. If I'm in doubt, I'd like to see your family album. I'd like to, to, to examine your grandparents. Maybe your great-grandparents. I want to look at this family and they're a little bit of the trajectory of their history. So that would be my answer that for the young lady, you cannot be too careful. And for the young man, if you are in doubt, then you need to spend a lot of time checking that matter out so that you will not obscure and damage the life of a fine young lady by your bad genetics. Okay, Mr. Diamond, you got two minutes. 
want to say that like in in courtship and in dating something that's so important is not to uh, ignore warning signs and so you know if if you have a warning sign like you know there is possible uh, other races in the in the background you know, don't one thing that's so important is don't get so close to a person before you've done your homework don't don't build too much of that emotional bond you know when you're holding hands and you know feelings you're get you're you're really bonding yourself to to that person and so you know build a relationship slowly don't become so uh, close together prematurely that you can't realize that there's warning signs and you're just running them over because you, your feelings are just steamrolling you down the hill towards that relationship you know take time be be cautious and don't ignore the big red flag you know and if, if your friends are like hey you know I, I really think you got, you need to look at this and your parents are saying hey you know you need to look at this you can't ignore those things you know, don't don't get so close together that you are just oh you know we're 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 good we're we're gonna make it because um, you can end up in a really bad spot a couple years down the road where those warning signs that you thought oh the, you know we can ignore that it'll work itself out later they're right there in front of you and they're gonna destroy your relationship so. okay Dan when I was still a mechanic. Uh, the dealership I worked for sold a combine to the Oneida Indian Reservation Farm, uh, which is uh, west of Green Bay in Wisconsin. And I actually met the, the tribal chairperson, a lady, and uh, you could not tell that she was an Indian. Some of the people that I worked with on the farm, you could tell they were Indians. and. The thing is, the Oneidas came to Wisconsin from New York. And many of the Eastern Indian tribes look like us. Now, we don't know their ancestry. I mean, are they descendants of Vikings? Are they descendants of the Irish? Or even older than that? We don't know what America was like. But there was actually a fellow that was worked on the farm there that was, had a Polish name. And he was a member of the tribe. And you could tell that there were members of the tribe that looked like Asians, and you could tell that there were others that looked like Caucasians. You don't know the genetics. You don't know. So I would say you have to be cautious. Okay. You know, if you're meeting somebody like that, be cautious. All right, finally, I'm gonna chime in on this one just very briefly as I kind of been collecting my thoughts as these gentlemen are talking. This, this whole racial question is very important. And I think all of us would agree it is. And, and, and over time, I've, there's really, I've sort of developed for myself when, when I'm thinking about a, a given person, there's really four tools you've got that are available to us at this present time. We've got four tools that I see. I see, number one, we have the new tool of DNA testing. But it is a new technology, and the history of technologies tell you that bugs need to be worked out. And of course, we do live in a time in which things are politically charged, and so you gotta kinda bear that in mind as well. If you think about science in general, it's becoming more and more politically charged compared to 50 or 60 years ago. But we do have it as a tool. 
So DNA testing is one of the four tools. A second tool, though, that is, we shouldn't uh, obscure is what we'll just call traditional genealogy. And traditional genealogy is what we used 20 or 30 years ago, where you reconstruct from, from family records. And some of those are pretty good and rather extensive, and there's a, a lot that can be obtained there. Uh, third, you have, we do have observation. I mean, and if you have a, I don't think we should necessarily ignore, ignore what our own eyes might be telling us. But that bearing in mind that that's just one of our four tools, just one. And the fourth one, which has been articulated, is the fruit of that person over time. And that, I think, is also really, really useful to, to help us discern this. So those four tools together may help us work our way through some of these difficult issues that are a, a real challenge. All right, so let's go to the next question. And I see it is now 1225. This will be our last question. There's a couple in here. And it is going to be... All right. Please give a brief comment about the importance of the sacred name debate, Yahweh versus Jehovah, Yahweh versus Lord, Yeshua versus Jesus. Is there someone like, okay, I see Ian's hand first. You got first shot, Ian. Um, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, we find God's names written in Hebrew to uh, see if that yeah, is that a surprise to you that in, a, in the Hebrew Bible, we have Hebrew names for God? What, what other language would you find them? Would we expect them to be written in, in that text, right? We have a you know, second witness to our scriptures, the Greek scriptures. They're written in Greek. What language is God's name written therein? They're in Greek. So to see if God's name... You know, written in Hebrew is to be perpetual to his people who don't speak Hebrew. We need only examine scripture in the text of another language. In the Greek scriptures, we find Greek names for God, which is why Christians in prayer and in song and in their Bibles have used names for God in the language that they speak for 2,000 years now. You know, Christ, when he appeared to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, he did. He spoke to him in Hebrew. And... Yeah, you know, that was because Paul was this high-minded Jew. You know, he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and to him, you know, God probably had to speak to him in Hebrew to get his attention. But at the end of Revelations, what does Jesus say? He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What, what, are the, what is the Alpha and the Omega? It's the beginning and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And then what does he say? I am Jesus. And he says that name, he's speaking Greek. We know he's speaking Greek because he said he's the Alpha and the Omega. And so he takes that name, Jesus, says, that's who I am. I am the Savior. And so, you know, we should continue in the doctrine of the apostles in their teaching. And so whenever they quoted from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew scriptures, did they transliterate the name, you know, whatever pronunciation you think it is, Jehovah, Yahweh, did they transliterate that name into Greek? Did they you know, take the letters from Hebrew and try to make a Greek pronunciation of that name? No, they didn't. They emphatically always translated it as Lord or God. And that's the tradition that we have. That is the teaching of the apostles of how scripture is brought into another language. So, you know, we can't make a talisman out of a certain name, a certain pronunciation. You know, we're commanded to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost because that's 
you know, throughout all languages, it, it brings the meaning that God is our Father, and He sent His beloved only begotten Son, and we have a Holy Spirit that guides and directs us. It's not, it's the meaning, God is eternal, He's our Father, He's before all worlds and in all things. So, you know, let us continue in the faith that's delivered once to the saints, the doctrine of the apostles that's clearly taught to bring the names of God into the language that you speak is the doctrine of the apostles. That's what we should endeavor to strive for, the faith that is once delivered unto the saints. Are you finished? Okay, I'm gonna jump in then. Who's the next? Nathan, are you, did I get your, your hand third? Your, your hand's up next? Okay, I'm, I'm gonna jump in, then I'll turn it over to you. So um, this sort of bleeds into the other, another question that we had earlier re regarding the King James Bible. So I think in many respects, this is a little bit of an issue of authority. Um, and, 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 and men, I want really, it's mostly men who get themselves uh, wired up about this topic, not ladies. And, and, and I, that, I don't know why, but that, that just seems to be, and I think it's men who really, I don't mean to be too hard on, on these fellows, but I think it's men who really struggle perhaps a little bit with, with authority. If you believe that the King James Bible is the Bible we ought to be reading, then you need to trust that God was able to preserve that scripture. And well, the words on the page are the words on the page. So just read it and accept that the word that's in front of you is what God wants you as an English speaking person to use. So if it says Jehovah, say Jehovah. If it says Lord, say Lord. Now I know that for those who are, have a detailed teacher mind, there's all kinds of reasonable arguments that can be raised. They're not horrible arguments about why it should have been this or why it should have been that. But bear in mind that those translators were exceptionally, exceptionally skilled men in an age when the best and brightest studied words and languages. They were literally the best men of Western culture in the last thousand years when it comes to languages. And, and for those who say, oh, we know more about languages and our, our Hebrew scholars know more today than the Hebrew scholars then and the Greek scholars know more today than the Greek scholars then, I don't buy it. Uh, they may, maybe they've got a few more facts, but they've got a lot more baggage in terms of their approach and their theology and their background and their doubts. These were also men of extraordinary faith and they proved their faith by going through the fires of the Protestant Reformation. So these were, these were true intellectual and spiritual giants. And a lot of, a lot of people, some people are gonna just gonna struggle with the idea that I, I have to be bound to words that I didn't write. Well, I think that's good for you. And I think it's good for all of us to yield our, to yield our brain to a higher authority and say it says what it says. And that's good enough for me without having to say, oops, I'm reading along here, but oh, that, that's not right. Uh, don't say that, insert this. And two verses, oh, don't say that, insert this. Don't say that, insert this. I'm really uncomfortable with that. And I think that freewheeling approach doesn't yield good fruit when it comes to Bible interpretation and a Christian lifestyle and a biblical worldview. So thank you. Okay, so Mr. Uh, uh, is it Clark? Were you, were you the one that had wanted to speak on this? Yeah. I'll turn it over to you, and we're going to be winding up shortly here. All right. Get my 60 seconds in. My dad always liked the statement, um, keep it simple, stupid. So sometimes that's just the best policy to operate on. So here's the simplicity of it. Um, 
scripture teaches, Jesus taught that there's power in his name. He says they will hate you because they first hated me. You want to be hated? You go into a group of people and say something about Jesus. You'll have a reaction. You go into that same group of people and say something about Yahshua, and they'll look at you like you're, that you're something wrong with you. They won't have a problem with Yahshua. They do have a problem with Jesus. So that tells you that the spirits of this, the evil spirits of this world are operating in those people under the name of Jesus. The second thing, just a historical tidbit, nothing great has happened in churches of Yahshua. Great things have happened with churches that revolved around the name of Jesus. Okay. All right. All right. One more minute. Pastor Gaiman. Pastor, you get the last word. <clears throat> the church of Israel has been all over the map with sacred names versus the English. We were at one time a, a Yahweh speaking body of people. And uh, some of you people in here know that. We've been all over the map. We never did uh, relinquish the name of Jesus Christ. We've never done that. However, we've been all over that theological map on the sacred names. I respect and I honor those who, who really, truly, sincerely believe that they have cornered a wonderful, they found a, a great cornerstone of truth that they found and they, they are tenaciously uh, devout in their belief. I have no doubt about the sincerity of their belief. My problem is this. In the King James Bible, 47 scholars of the most highly developed linguist ability that has ever assembled in human history. We have never had an assembly of the kind of scholarship and the, and the ability and the devout Christian nature of those translators that's ever, ever been uh, on the scene of history. And we would absolutely not be able to reproduce that group of men today in the Western world. So they, trust me, they weighed carefully the name of Yahweh versus Jehovah. I'll end this, I think I've already exceeded my one minute. True. But, <laughs> true. But let's just look at something. But go ahead. How many letters and how many syllables does Yahweh have? There's six letters. Six is the number of man. There's two syllables. Two is the number of division. What has the sacred name movement created? Come on, say it. Division. It divided this congregation. Then the other point I will make is that Jehovah has how many syllables? Three, that's completeness. How many letters does it have? Seven. Seven letters, spiritual perfection. How many syllables is in the name jo uh, Jonathan? See, the, the number three is completeness, and the Hebrew language is full of names that have the three syllables. So... You know, I, I don't camp out on this issue, and I fully accept many wonderful brothers and sisters that uh, use Yahshua and Jehovah. I'm not going to use this as a divisionary uh, idea, but I, I do believe that for a congregation, the King James Bible is, will, it will unify 
your body. So I'll just stop with that. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, panelists, uh, we are complete. The time has expired. It's time for everybody to go to lunch. So uh, I'll dismiss all of you panelists. You can go back to your seats.